What's up, everybody? You are listening to the Rethinking Christianity podcast. And on today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Michael Heiser. Dr. Heiser and I discuss how to approach the Bible and rethink how we read the Bible and how we can go deeper in our reading of the Bible. Dr. Heiser was super helpful and insightful in the information that he presents in this interview. I hope that this interview is encouraging for you, but also challenging. And so with that being said, let's get into the episode. Dr. Heiser, thank you for coming on Rethinking Christianity. Dr. Heiser is a graduate from the University of Wisconsin. He has an MA and PhD in Hebrew Bible and Semitic Studies. Uh, He's spent dozens of years in classroom teaching experiences and settings, um, and he is currently a scholar in residence at Lagos Bible Software. Dr. Heiser has written several books, including The Unseen Realm, Supernatural, The Bible Unfiltered, Approaching Scripture on Its Own Terms, and he is also the host of the Naked Bible Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. I, I, I have to I have to update that that uh, litany of stuff, <laughs> litany of things about me. I am no longer at Logos. Uh, uh, <clears throat> about a year, well, it's we're in March now. Uh, Fifteen months ago, yeah, we moved to Jacksonville, Florida. So my lofty title now. <laughs> is I'm the executive director of the Awakening School of Theology. So I, you know, I, I find myself in, in a really interesting situation. I mean, it's just, you know, a lot of us can say we, we wound up in places that we never thought we'd be. <laughs> uh, this is one for me. This is a, a large church or network of churches, church campuses. You know, what, what we on the outside would have referred to as a megachurch. <clears throat> And because of a variety of things over the last three years, they are trying to shift from from what they refer to. This was a new term for me. It's probably not a new term for you, but the attractional model of ministry, uh, yeah. basically event based ministry. Yeah, you know, lights and and all that kind of stuff, lights and cameras. They're trying to to shift from an attractional ministry to producing content for the churches in their network and it's a it's very interesting to be here it's a slow um process because it's a huge ship to steer and so lots of things are in process but i i was asked to come here to contribute in as many ways as i could to producing content so i thought yeah you know i i am certainly willing to help you out uh, I, I enjoyed Logos. I still, you know, write. I'm planning on, on writing things for Lexum, which is the print, you know, arm of that. But I, anybody who's listening to this who knows me already knows that the thing that floats my boat is producing content for the local church. It. I, I don't like the fact that there's a deep divide between the way scholars think and talk about the biblical text. And I'm talking about believing scholars here, not, you know, skeptics, but just the way a scholar thinks and talks about the biblical text and what people hear in church. There is a wide chasm uh, between those two things. And so good, solid, academic, peer-reviewed content almost never filters down to the church. And I think that is a serious problem. And basically we're, we're seeing the consequence of it now in this generation. And I think it's going to take a few generations to to correct this, but it's going to take more than 
you know, me and my podcast. I mean, I, I just try to beat this drum no matter where I go. And there are a lot of people like you out there that, that are, are beating the drum too, that this, this has to change. Um, we have to have content production and content absorption in the church. And I think lay people, broadly speaking, we, they are regularly underestimated. Yes. I think Christian you know, church leadership underestimates their aptitude for content and also their appetite. But the problem is, is if you're going to, if you're going to feed people, if you're going to be serious about that, that takes work. And a lot of people don't either don't want to do the work or they're not trained to do the work. They're, they're trained to entertain. Jesus is your cosmic life coach, you know, or, you know, just pulling little things from the Bible here and there and, quote unquote, applying them to life, which in translation means making it say pretty much whatever I needed to say this week. <laughs> you know, it, that's got to stop. It's got to stop. Yes, I would totally agree. And and that's kind of one of the things that I try to do on this podcast is just uh, making people or encouraging people to reevaluate maybe the content that they're absorbing, the way that they're viewing scripture and church. Uh, and I think the stuff that you put out is super helpful in that. And so before we kind of get rolling, I'd love to just hear some of your story mm-hmm. of, you know, kind of how you got to where you're at now. Uh, you said, you know, you end up somewhere where you didn't think you would be. I, you know? My story is so filled with convoluted. You've got to be kidding. Why in the world are you doing that <laughs> sorts of events? Because I, you know, I didn't have any any direction other than, what I'll call blind sovereignty. You know, it, I didn't, I don't, I don't come from a Christian context that became a believer as a teenager. My, nobody in my family, you know, had gone to college. So I just more or less stumbled through, you know, these steps, you know, to, to where I am now. And, and a lot of decisions were made on the basis of a single conversation. You know, getting out of high school, I, I go to my pastor. You know, I'm a, I'm a Christian now for two years, and and I I was spoiled. The church that I went to, uh, my original context was an independent fundamental Baptist church, and they took Scripture seriously. They really did. And so I loved it. You know, I was always interested in anything old and weird. You know, I was the, the guy who was watching, you know, all the strange, before there was ancient, if there would have been ancient aliens, I'd have been glued to that too, you know, but like anything old and weird in the Bible was just like right there in the sweet spot. Um, So I loved it, but I literally went to him when I graduated high school and said, what should I do? You know, I, I don't really know what I I do good in school. You know, I'm smarter than the average bear and I, I, but yeah, what, what am I going to do with that? And he suggested I go to Bible college. So I did. You know, and then I went to, you know, four or five different places. I mean, I I got the sense once I was in it that, you know, this is what I'd like to do. I remember in seventh grade in a a history class when the guy was talking about ancient Egypt, I remember thinking as a seventh grader, I want to be an old crusty professor someday and teach this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So, So again, it's anything old and weird, but, you know, I, the Bible revived that for me, uh, but I just didn't know how. But eventually I, I, I thought to myself, you know, I'd kind of like every place I go, every degree I get to be harder and more antagonistic. Mm-hmm. 
because I had this naive confidence that there's nothing new under the sun. I really believed it, that all these questions that get thrown at, at Scripture are not new. And there are going to be really good thinkers who have heard this question and thought through it before. You just have to know where to find them. And I just had this sense that, you know, when give me your best shot. When the dust clears, I'll bet the Bible will still be here. I'll bet the Lord will still be there. And and let's just let's just do that. <laughs> I liked it all. I thought the Old Testament was where there were the most problems. And so I eventually and I liked languages, too. I like dead languages. So I thought this is what I should do. And that's what we did. And it was a struggle. I worked 15 years. I worked full time going through school for 15 years, you know, three graduate degrees, four kids. It, to, to say it was difficult is just doesn't even begin to capture, you know, what was going on. But I just had this sense that I'm supposed to do this. The, the Lord will make it better. You can, you know, you can do anything for a short amount of time. It'll turn out okay. <laughs> Again, all these naive thoughts, you know, just just really, well, the Lord wouldn't have done this crazy thing over here if I wasn't supposed to be over there, you know. And, and that was just how, how we, we did things. And, you know, all the while it was a means to an end. I wanted to, I wasn't going to be one of these people, and, and Lord bless them because I benefit from them, but I am not chasing prepositions across the text corpus for the rest of my life. <laughs> I mean, I can do it, but it's boring. But yeah. that's the people who do because they're going to have three or four nuggets that I will find, and and they're going to they're going to contribute something to to what I really love, and that is biblical theology that is text driven. By definition, that's what biblical theology should be. You should get it from your text, from the biblical text, and then start to connect the dots. And so that's sort of what I've morphed into. I, I'd love to, to sit here and say, oh, I had this grand, intelligent plan, and I'm, I'm just so smart. I figured it out, and I followed, I didn't, you know, I, I just blundered through the whole thing, but it wasn't <laughs> really a blunder. It, it's just, you know, it, the, the Lord does things, and, and when you, in my case, when you do something stupid, okay, well, we'll, we'll correct that. It, you know, stupidity is supposed to hurt. That's your stupid tax, you know. <laughs> And, and you just sort of get through it, and then you, you produce as much content as you can. And so I, I have a very simple, convoluted – I could tell crazy stories for hours and just make people laugh at the dumb stuff I did. But, but the, the end result of it is I, I love what I do. I, I love producing content, and, and I can see very clearly why it matters. Yeah. And so I try to beat that drum and find other scholars. I mean, my job at Lagos put me in contact with hundreds of scholars all over the world. So I know a lot of these guys, you know, and I, you know, and, and women too, you know, I, my, you know, I had a woman professor at UW that basically saved my bacon there, you know, a couple of times. And, and she was the reason I stayed. And, you know, I just want to find people like that who who care about what they do and they do it well, but it, it's a means to an end. It's not an end in, of, in and of itself. And they're directed toward helping people understand scripture in its own context. Yeah, I would definitely agree that that is going to be continually valuable for, for the church and for people that are just wanting to go deeper. And I think people want it. 
Um, so in your in your studies, in the midst of all that, um, what did you kind of find maybe that was the most impactful for just your personal faith? Like as you were um, studying, you know, weeding through the books and the footnotes and everything else, what did you find um, that just kind of impacted your faith and maybe changed how you viewed the Bible and approached uh, walking yeah. and following Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked the question that way because all those things are interconnected in my case uh, and in my head. I think the thing that has been the most valuable for me is it's going to sound so simple. Like, how could you, how could you miss this? How could you not think this thought? But I didn't. And that is the biblical writers aren't us. They weren't us. So that means that God prepared these people to write stuff to people in their own day using whatever intelligence or technique or skills or occasion, you know, the, the stuff, boots on the ground realities in their head that they had. And, and what that, what you say, big deal, you know, what, what that means is that the Bible was not written to us. So if we are going to understand it, as I like to say on my podcast, you know, a lot, you know, Naked Bible podcast, I want the Israelite living in your head when you read the Old Testament. And I want the second temple period, the intertestamental period Jew living in your head when you read the New Testament, because that is the context for those things. Okay, the right context for interpreting scripture is not evangelicalism. It is not Catholicism. It is not the Reformation. It's not the Puritans. It's not the church fathers. All of these contexts are, are good and they, they contribute something. They were important for different reasons. You know, there, there's something to be gained in all of them, but they are all by definition post-biblical. That's just what they are. It's nothing sinister. It's just they are not the biblical context. The right context for interpreting scripture is the, is the context, really contexts, at the time when the biblical writers were sitting on their butt producing this stuff, you know, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, that, that simple observation, what could be more obvious? But the problem is it's not obvious today. We tend to assume that the biblical writers ask the same questions of the text that we do. So we go to Genesis and we wonder about physics and DNA and, you know, you, come on. You know, <laughs> it, it's just it's ridiculous when you actually sit down and think about how we think about the biblical text. So if, if these things are not what's floating around in their head. What was? Yeah. You know, what are they actually thinking now? Now, if we understand the, the scriptures in their context, it'll still be applicable to us. You know, the Bible was written for our benefit. It just wasn't written to us. So we still need to do what we're used to doing, make it, you know, applicable. And, and you know, how, how does it you know help how I think and how I live today? All, all that's important. But but you have to you know, use what Scripture is actually saying to do that. Otherwise, you're importing ideas into the text and then extracting them back out and calling it Bible teaching. Yeah. And that is not what we're supposed to be doing. So that, 
I was forced to do that in graduate school. They don't let you use English translations, okay? <laughs> you have to use primary sources. We don't care about your, your Christian traditions or the Jewish tradition. You know, we, we don't care about anything modern. You're doing biblical studies, <laughs> you know, and, and you have that beaten into your head. Appreciate and treat the text for what it is. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I, what I found in my own personal just walking and studying of the Bible is exactly what you just said, thinking through and, and trying to figure out how to set aside some of the systematic theology that I've grown up in because that was not the starting point of the text. And and what you mentioned on like speaking to let the biblical text drive the theology, not the things that we've created or the church yeah, fathers it, or whatever. And that's been to be what I've had to do. But, but the, the biblical, okay, the text geeks like me, okay, it's our responsibility to give the systematic theologian the, the data points that derive from the text so that they have the best material, the right material to work with. And now, you, you know, go, go arrange that. That's what you guys like to do, okay? Go put that in categories. Be warmed and filled, okay? I'll, I'll, I'll dig out some more for you later, you know? So I'm not the enemy of systematic theology, but I know what you're saying. That's usually where people begin. They begin with, yes. with a, a system that, that gets imposed upon the text and in some cases, it's a good alignment. In other cases, let's be honest, it's just made up. It's yeah. just stuff that, that's bent to the will of the systematizer or the tradition or the denomination, you know, or the occasion, you know, the, the thing I need right now for my sermon this week or because this thing happened, you know, in America or, you know, that, that, is, that is no substitute for exegesis. Yeah. We, need to, we need to assume that God knew what he was doing. Okay, if we understand the text in its own context, do we really not believe that God is capable of directing our hearts and minds to the text and, and understanding it well and still being able to apply it to whatever we need? Is God somehow not capable of that if, if we really try to understand the text in context? Or do we need our system so badly that we're not even going to let God try? <laughs> you know, to do that. Yeah. You know it, again, yeah. none of this is rocket science. These are these are really simple thoughts, but but we're almost trained to not think them. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And you kind of hit on this a minute ago. Uh, you mentioned Genesis not referring to science and DNA and all those things. So, what are some some misconceptions? of what the Bible is and what it is not that maybe you've come across over the course of your time, just within yeah. church and your studies. I think one of the, one of the handiest things, and, and some in your audience, if they're younger, might be familiar with the Bible project. You know, Tim Mackey is a friend of mine. We, we went through the same program, but um, I, I was finishing while he was starting, but, but what they're doing there is really handy. And that is remembering that, especially biblical narrative and especially, you know, lots of, lots of stuff in the Torah is story. You know, they're, they're not concerned. The biblical writers are not concerned with giving us a, a play by play blow by blow chronicle, you know, of, of every last event and conversation in excruciating detail, you know, that, that would satisfy the way, you know, history is done today, multiple sourcing, cross checking, 
Well, they're telling a story, and that doesn't mean it's not true. Okay, I can tell you the story of how I got my job. You know, and, and I and I love that. I, I use this as an illustration in my own, you know, school. My, I have my own school now, a school of theology here in Jacksonville. I can tell them the story of how I got my job at Lagos because it's crazy. It is a living illustration of, of providence. The job literally materialized on it didn't even exist while I was driving home from, from school one day. And by the time I hit my door, it did. And I only found that out 10 years later. Okay, so I can tell this story, but I can't verify and validate any of the events. I didn't write them down in the moment. I didn't interview anybody. I didn't check the clock, you know, for the time. I, mean, I didn't do any of the things that modern historians want. There are no sources that, that, you know, parallel sources I can bring to bear on this, except maybe one or two voices for a couple of conversations I had over, over the phone. But you know what? I was there. Okay. I know it happened because I'm here. You know, so this is what, what the biblical writers are, are, are actually doing. They're, they're telling stories about things that happened. And God is one of the central characters they assume God is behind the things that happened, and they tell the story and unfold it. And, and when, you, when you focus on, on Scripture as story, and also the, the context of the questions they're asking and the ones they're not asking, you realize that, you know, why are they doing this? What do they want us to know? Well, they want us to know who God is against the other gods. They want us to know why we're here. They want us to know how we got here. They want us to know what our purpose is. I mean, there are a lot of these big picture questions. You know, the writers want, want, want the reader to know that why Israel is different than the other nations. Yes, they have a shared culture, okay? It's from the same region. The languages are related. All this stuff, there should be similarities, but there are also key differences. You know, and the biblical writer can't take a shot at somebody else's religion, like a Babylonian or an Egyptian unless he uses their material. I mean, how, how in the world could I, if I was critiquing, let's say that I just, you know, hate Chevy or something like that, okay? And I'm going to write a, a paper on why Chevy stinks, okay? But I'm not allowed to, to, to reference anything that Chevy says. Well, how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to evaluate their claims? if I'm not allowed to quote them, you know, and, and so try to put yourself in, in, in the, in the boots, you know, of, of the biblical writer, of course, they're using other material from the ancient Near East. Of course, it's going to look like, you know, a covenant in the, in the Bible is going to look like a covenant somewhere else because the writer's not an idiot. He knows how to write covenants. He's seen them before. Okay. Of course, it's not going to be a, a minute detailed record thing that would satisfy a historian today but it's faithful to what happened and they give God the credit for how things play out. Mm. Okay. If we can just remember that, then it really does help direct our thinking on what we should expect from the Bible. And so we evaluate it on the basis of what it is, not on the basis of what we want it to be or what we think it should be or the way we would do it now. Okay. <laughs> you know, uh, the historicity thing really gripes me because what I love to say to these critical historians is, look, hey, tell me how you met your wife. 
And I'll tell you the story. Do you have two or three other sources that can confirm that? Do you have a record of the conversation? I mean, I can go right down and use their criteria against them. The, the fact is that the people who complain about historicity in the Bible can't even produce their own story according to their own standards. That, you know, it, it's so irritating. And so the Bible gets attacked for not being, you know, what it, it never was supposed to be. It doesn't make any sense. So, so this has been really helpful, you know, to me. Again, this isn't rocket science. Remember what it is. Don't make it what it's not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, pro tip. Let the Bible be what it is. Don't evaluate on the basis of what it's not. Yeah. Simple thought, but really profound ramifications. Yeah. I've explained it to friends as best as I can. Um, I've explained it as if I wrote a letter to someone and they found this letter 200 years from now, just 200 years, and they didn't know the things that were going on in my life, and they didn't know what kind of things I was thinking about or whatever it may be, and they just took this letter, took it for what's on the paper, and made it mean something completely different than what I had mm-hmm. written, I would be aggravated. And I always ask the other person, I'm like, would you think that they really understood what I was trying to say? And they always say no. And I'm like, well, then why do we do that with the Bible? And I think yeah. that speaks to exactly what you're saying about how yeah. oftentimes these misconceptions are placed upon the Bible instead of us just starting and, and looking yeah. to seek what it is. And, and look at the look at the culture from which this emerges. You know, we talk about your truth, my truth. You know, look. the The bottom line is, you would be you would be rightly angered if my truth about something you said, or texted, or wrote mm. was 180 degrees away from what you know you intended. Yep. And if you can't own that, you're lying. That, that's where the rubber meets the road. You are lying. You are lying to, just to defend this idea that is unlivable. And you don't want to live it. <laughs> you know? yeah. it, it but, but again, this is what happens in the culture. And we think it's, it's innocuous. We think, well, what harm is there? You know, they're, they're kind of deluded, but, you know, what, who cares? You know, what, what's the worst that could happen? Well... <laughs> The cumulative yeah. effect of this is the worst that can happen. Yeah, it's, hap- now, it's happening. Now we're descending into madness, you know, in, in the West. Um, that's kind of the worst that could happen. The abandonment of science and reason and you know, anything that, you know, even, even math now, two plus two, that, you know, we're not allowed to affirm that. Like that's, you know, somehow, you know, culturally insensitive. Look, it is a descent into madness. But this is where it starts this kind of misguided approach to content. Yeah. A quote of yours that I really appreciate, um, it goes along the lines of, I'll no longer protect people from their Bible. And what I've really appreciated about that is that it seems, for, for me, and growing up in, I grew up in pre-Southern Baptist tradition. Mm-hmm. I grew, I've been in the mega church world and, and you know all that. And it seems as though what we do Sunday Sunday in, Sunday out, whatever, is keeping people kind of in a protected, you know, viewpoint of the Bible. Uh, And, you know, with this podcast, with the rethinking, um, the hope is not to make people like change their minds about how they view God or or whatever. It's to challenge them, to challenge Mm -hmm. them in their genuineness and their authenticity. 
And so that quote, um, I just would love to hear kind of what, kind of your thoughts on when you say that, I'll no longer protect people from their Bible. Yeah, I, when, when I say that, I first of all, I mean it. And, and second of all, it implies that I had done it before and I did. Um, I, I just don't believe that there's there are things in the Bible that people shouldn't know. I think it's insulting, not only to their intellect, but I think it's insulting to God, okay, and, and his intent. There, I don't believe there's anything random or, or th- to be thrown away in Scripture. It all plays a role in, again, the overarching story that, that we're supposed to you know, be able to recognize and, and, you know, derive our theology from. So I, you know, I, mea culpa, you know, I, I was guilty of that. And I realized it again in graduate school and I, I, in Unseen Realm, which is probably the book I'm most known for, you know, I relate, you know, the big one in, in, in the first chapter of Psalm 82, you know, we don't need to get, get into that here, but, but I was provoked by something that was transparently in the text, but somehow I have two master's degrees. I'm in a PhD program in Hebrew studies. I've taught for five years and I've taught about 20 courses and I've never run into that. And when I, when I was confronted with it, I went out to trusted evangelical sources, you know, commentaries and the explanations they had for it were, this is a nice word, absurd. (laughs) Okay. Because they didn't work not only in the passage, but they didn't work in other passages that this passage affected. And I thought, what is going on here? And I could see why they went in the direction they did interpretively. It was to protect me from seeing certain things that might scare me, Mm. might alarm me. And, you know, again, as soon as I could balance the benefit of just letting it say what it said, and, and learning how, you know, what the impact that had in, in other passages and just you know, the component part it was in, in the biblical theological story, it, it, it angered me. You prevented me from understanding the Bible. You might have had a good motive. And I know I've done the same thing to people. And I, it, it just felt terrible. Yeah. <laughs> no. terrible. Yeah. I feel it's like, like I'm, I'm just no longer going to do this because the Bible doesn't need protection and you don't need it either. Scripture is given for your benefit. Do I believe that or not? Yeah. You know, it really comes, it's, it's a, it became an issue of biblical authority. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I've definitely relate to that in some ways. So, you know, I mentioned that I kind of grew up in a pretty traditional Southern Baptist tradition, tradition, which um, I'm thankful for. Um, but when I started doing my undergrad stuff, uh, in Christian studies, I started reading commentaries and things like that. And, and that stuff was not even presented to me. And, and mm-hmm. um, in a yeah. sense, I felt like bamboozled in a way that I was not given all this like like extra stuff. It was all just, you know, comfortable theology. Yeah. And, and um, why weren't you? The assumption is either you can't handle it, like it's well, going to drive you away from the faith or something, or you're just not interested. Yeah. And I think people are really interested. Yeah. You know, it, I mean, there, there is what I call the kale problem, okay, in, in our churches. And that is, you and I could, could, I could come to your church, you could have me in to, to speak about kale, and you're, and you're the kale evangelist at your church. And we can go on and on and on about the wonders of kale, the power of kale, how kale is just so awesome. And everything you put in it, it makes better. 
you know, kale, 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 kale. At the end of the day, we could be right 100% of the time, but here's the question. If you're not eating kale now, what's going to make you take a bite? Who's going to eat it? And it's really difficult to, to get people to take that first bite. But if you can, if you can, then they'll start with a nibble. They're going to want a little bit more. You know, they're, they're going to develop an appetite. So I, I think once you, once you get them to take the first nibble, people do want to know. But, but the church has been so, like I said, drained of content that people don't, they don't have any sense for what they're missing. Yeah. The, the Bible has been presented to them as, as it's, it's like Oprah. You know, why don't you just go listen to Oprah? You know, it, it's self-help. It's, you know, it, it's, it's psych, psychology. And I'm not saying people don't need to be encouraged, but, but why do we have to pick? Why do we have to pick on a Sunday morning between encouraging people and teaching them something? Like, is it impossible to do both? I don't believe it. I, I just don't believe it. And I, and I think if, if you do believe it, then you're self-deceived, okay? You're either lazy or self-deceived. You know, what, 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 if the shoe fits, wear it or wear both of them. You know, I just don't believe it, you know, that you can do both and you can get people interested and, and lead them along till they develop the appetite because it's, it's just going to be there. Yeah. People who are serious about their faith, they want to feel like they know and understand the Bible. It's interesting. It's important. They want to feel like, like, like they can handle what's in here. They, they, they get something out of it. They, they understand it. It's not this, this, this nebulous, impenetrable, what in the world's going on thing. It's appealing when, when people really grok something and it's like, yeah, you know, I, I see it now. Because once you see it, you can't unsee it. And then they want to see more. You know, and sometimes you have to do this gently. Other times, I mean, with, with, I have a book called I Dare You Not to Bore Me with the Bible. And the, and the title comes from my experience teaching undergrads at a Bible college. Because you walk into the room and they think, hey, you know, we, we grew up in church. You know, we know all this stuff already. I got to take this survey class to get credits. It's required. I'm here. I don't like it. But, you know, let's go. I could endure for a semester. And so it was fun disabusing them <laughs> of the thought that they really knew what was going on. Yeah. And sometimes you have to trouble people to do that. Now, you know, it, it's always better to, to have a relationship. Look, you know, what I tell people is you're not going to read Mike's book and, and, and come out with, well, I thought the gospel was A and Mike says it's B. No, no that, that isn't what's going to happen to you. What's going to happen to you if you're patient, if you actually read the material, is you're going to wind up at a lot of the same theological conclusions that you have now. They're solid. But it's like getting in a car. It's like if I know you want to go from point A to point B and I say, get in a car, I'll take you. I've been there a hundred times, you know. And, and, you, and you, you think, okay, this, this isn't easy because I've been there too, you know. So you get in the car and after a minute or two, you look out the window and nothing looks the same. And now you wonder, am I going to die? <laughs> you know, <laughs> who is this crazy man that I've I've gotten in his car now? And, and you know, but it's like, just hang on, I'll get you there. I'm going to go by a different route, but you'll get there safe and sound, on on time. I'll get you there. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it just depends on on who the audience is, but people 
people need content because they need to, to think well. Christians need to think well. And if you want to think biblically, you must understand the scripture. Then you can apply it to the things going on in your world. And you can know that, that I'm not making it up. I'm not guessing. You, know, you, you shouldn't have the thought, well, I applied it there, but does that really make any sense? No, I mean, you, you should have the security of knowing that you're handling the text properly and that, you know, the Lord is helping you to develop a worldview that's consistent with this thing that he inspired, you know, that he, he gave us. Yeah. I saw, so I saw the other day, um, maybe it was the other day, but it was a quote on, on your Instagram and I'd like to kind of, and this kind of plays into some of the more practical side of like, you know, we're giving information of like, okay, we, you need to do this. But mm-hmm. you know, the next question for many listeners or people that are trying to like reevaluate how they read the Bible or view the Bible is how do I do that? And this quote said, Bible study is about discovering the meaning of the text, not deciding how to apply the text. And I just want to ask what, so you've kind of hit on obviously why that's very important. Um, but how do we miss the mark in biblical study when we're just simply trying to apply the text? And mm-hmm. how do people approach it in a way where it's not just this lofty thing? And I, I remember listening to, I think, a perfect example of, you know, a four-letter word you mentioned is work. <laughs> is um, you, There's a video that you posted on the book of Job. And I think this perfectly illustrates that you're, when you did this, you were not just looking to apply the text, but you were looking to find the meaning of the text. And... Um, this was on the subject of Satan in the book of Job and and in the Hebrew Hasatan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I saw this video and I thought this was a perfect illustration of like what that looks like and the actual work it takes in, in looking to find the meaning of the text. Mm-hmm. So I would love to hear you just kind of yeah. explain that. Yeah, it, it, it is a good example because, you know, on the one hand, you know, when, when you say things like, Hey, you know, the, the Satan, the Satan figure in Job 1 and 2 is not the devil. It, it, it jolts people. You know, it shocks them. Even if they have a study Bible that has a footnote. Adversary. <laughs> like, right. It says adversary. Okay. You know, and you say, well, you know, why should, I, why should I get in the car and take this ride? It's already uncomfortable. Well, here's why. Because at some point, either you or maybe your kid or your grandkid they're going to run into somebody on the internet or maybe in a college campus that's going to that's going to introduce them to the bible in a completely different way such as hey student christian student that i'm going to smile at but i really want to undermine your faith okay did you know that there's no place in the old testament that connects the word satan with the serpent of genesis 3 did you know that there's no Hebrew word for devil? You know, and you say, well, well, in the book of Revelation, you know, John calls the, the serpent and Satan and the devil. So there. Yeah, you're right. But that's the last book of the Bible. What about all those other books written before that? And, and is John making up something new because you can't find it in the Old Testament? Is he just sucking it out of his thumb? Maybe there really is a difference between New Testament theology and Old Testament, but how could that be if this is the word of God? Is God schizophrenic? Can't he make up his mind? I mean, there, there's any number of questions that if, if you as the, as the student, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go check that out when I get home, and you go home and you check it out, and you know what? Your professor's right. 
Okay, there, there is no, no textual evidence that Satan in Job 1 and 2 should be connected with Genesis 3, either in Job or anywhere else. And now you've got a problem. Okay, not only do you have a problem with, with how you think you were taught the Bible, and we have a problem with, with, with the Bible itself. Maybe, you know, maybe everybody's just making it up. You know, so it becomes a threat. And so this, is, this should not be something that destroys anybody's faith. The question isn't, is the Bible wrong and are my teachers hoodwinking me? But that's what you're going to think. The question should be, well, maybe we're not quite understanding Job 1 and 2 the way the writer intended it to be understood. <laughs> that's a totally different question, but it's not the one that's going to pop into their head first. Yeah. What's going to pop into their head first is the suspicion of who the people who taught them and the text itself. And those are both bad. So what we have going on in Job is you, you have, you know, hasatan, which sounds weird to people, again, who, who aren't, aren't looking at Hebrew or don't know anything about Hebrew. Hebrew is like English. Hebrew does not tolerate the definite article, the word the, in front of a proper personal name. I am not the Mike. Okay, that, that just sounds ridiculous. I don't refer to my wife as the dreamer. It, it, we don't do that in English, and neither does Hebrew. The definite article is never put before a proper personal name. I don't make up Hebrew. I didn't invent the language. I don't make up the grammar. It just is what it is. Every time in Job when the word Satan is in Job and also in Zechariah 3, guess what? It has the definite article. Every time. There are no exceptions in those passages. So what that means is that this is not a proper personal name. And by definition, if we don't have capital S Satan there, we don't have the devil there either. So who do we have? Okay, we have the adversary. You know, and I talk about this in my demons book and unseen realm. It, this is a term that, that is essentially, it's a job description. It's a role. The sons of God meet, you know, and, and, and God asks the adversary, the hasatan. You can mean adversary, challenger, prosecutor, basically this role, and, and it's actually described in the passage if we just read it. God says, hey, you know, where have you been? And, and the, you know, Hasatan says, well, I've been going running around to and fro throughout the whole earth. You know, this is actually part of what, of a bigger theme in the Bible, the heavenly books, where God keeps tabs on everything that's going on. And he uses members of the heavenly host to do that. They're his agents to see who's obedient and who's not, and everything gets recorded. And the, and the idea isn't that God has a bad memory. He doesn't have Alzheimer's, okay? The idea is that nothing is ever overlooked. That's what we're supposed to take away from the metaphor. So, so he asked the Satan, hey, what, where have you been? He said, oh, I've been running to and fro throughout the whole And God says, yeah, you know, have you seen Job? Have you checked him out? That guy is awesome. <laughs> He loves me. He's blameless. Have you seen him? And the Satan, here's where he crosses the line. The Satan says, yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking about. But you know what? If you took away everything that that guy had, he would curse you to your face. He would hate you. Now, he's done more than report now. What he's done is he's challenged God's omniscience and God's integrity. 
So either God doesn't really know or he's not telling the rest of the council, the sons of God, the whole truth. So this is, this is actually the explanation of what happens in the entire book. Because now that this challenge has been issued, God could, could just look at the Satan and say, you're dead, you know, and he drops over, or he blows him up or whatever. But you know what? If God destroys him, you know what that does? It leaves the questions on the table. They're unanswered. So the rest of the whole book is God having to vindicate his own character and show us that the Satan, the adversary, was wrong. And so God says to him, okay, I'll tell you what. Everybody listening here? Everybody got this? Take notes, okay? Go ahead and do to Job whatever you want, but except for killing him. Because I don't want you to come back here and say, oh, yeah, he would, he would have cursed you if I had just done this, but he died. No. You can do anything you want to him except for killing him. Try it. And we'll see who's right. Okay. And this is how the whole rest of now, now we, the reader, know this because we read the prologue. We know what's going on in, in the heavenlies, okay? <laughs> Job doesn't know any of this. He is righteous. God is correct. But now Job starts to suffer, and he has no explanation for it. You know, and, and, and so at, at the end, you know, God restores. He is vindicated. He blesses Job. And we, we know the story. But it has nothing to do with the serpent of Genesis 3. Now, you say, well, how did, how did John make the connection later? It doesn't start with John. It actually happens in the intertestamental period. Satan, this, this one who, who offers opposition, okay, or who opposes or challenges something, basically snoops around and sticks his nose in things that he shouldn't, <laughs> this sort of thing. I mean, all, all, the, all of these, these ways to describe this, this figure Intertestamental writers begin to pick up on the original rebel of Genesis 3, the serpent, and, and what, what, pardon the pun, what the fallout was of what happened there and, and how it came to pass. And they look at it and they say, you know what? He really is a liar. He opposed God's will. He did this, he did that. And so in the intertestamental period, they start using other terms besides serpent, nakash, to describe this guy and his behavior, okay? Mastema, Belial, which means worthless one. Satan, okay, the one who opposes. And, and so they begin to start using other vocabulary of the original rebel. And you know what? If the shoe sticks, wear it. He is all these things. And so by the time you get to the New Testament, Satan, Satanas in Greek, becomes a proper name. And it can function that way in Greek. Hmm. That's where we get Satan, capital S. You can find it in the Dead Sea Scrolls too. You know, it's just it's a development of how serious people, Jews living in the intertestamental period, they're looking at their Hebrew Bible. And what do they think of the Hebrew Bible? It's the inspired word of God. Look at all these data points. What do we do with them? How do we understand? They're doing just what we do. Okay. And, and they start to use other vocabulary of this villain. And by the, as hundreds of years pass, their vocabulary sticks and it gets used in the New Testament. That's all that's going on. The theology is intact. Okay, but we don't have to misunderstand the text to get to the theology. Yep. <laughs> we just don't. Yeah. You know, and, and so that, that's a really good 
you know, example of, and, and I'll be honest with you, I have had undergrad students from that went to other schools tell me that this is one of the things that was used against them in classes to get them to doubt scripture and, and the way they were taught. Yeah. And I think, Criminal. you know, the stuff that you just explained is, is it's a lot. I mean, it's a lot for the person that's kind of just grown up in church nominally to take in. And so, but what I think it also illustrates is that to get to the meaning of the text, it does take work and it does take like looking to understand the background, uh, some of the languages. I mean, we're not See, telling I, I listeners. Think your, your, your listeners and your viewers need to understand here what we just did there. It didn't change theology. We still have a primeval rebel from, from Genesis 3, and he later on he gets this label. The fact that the label isn't used in the Old Testament, who cares? It's used later. You know, what, what are, since when is this a vocabulary test, okay? We, our theology is intact, but what it did, what understanding the text properly does, is it helps provide an answer to that student in that classroom that is being antagonized by their unbelieving professor. That's what it helps do. Mm -hmm. It equips them to think well about scripture. And, and, and sad to say, a lot of, not, not just you know, college age students, but a lot of Christians can't do that. And it's not because they're dumb. They're not, okay? It's just because they have not been asked to think. They go to church every week, you know, they get a once a week you know, time with the Bible, and they're never asked to think. They're never given content. I mean, it, this is why I said at the beginning, we routinely underestimate the average person in the pew. Yeah. And, we, and we, have, we have numbed them to the point where you have to convince Christians that they ought to care about the Bible. That's how difficult the job is now. Yeah. I would definitely, I would concur, agree with that. And that's kind of, you know, some of the things that I want people to hear in this episode is that, like, you you should care. It shouldn't take convincing. It shouldn't take explaining all these details of one passage of Scripture to make you realize, oh, maybe I'm not really studying it the way I thought I was. Um, so me, practically, let me throw one out. This is the one I love to throw out. You know, well, there's lots of to throw out, but we'll, we'll start with this. Okay, let, let's just talk about demons, okay? Just the word demons, all right? Where do they come from? And the answer you're going to get, 99.9% .9 of people in church are going to say, well, well they, you know, you, Mike, don't you read the Bible? They, when, when Satan rebelled, he took a third of the angels with him. Those are the demons, dummy. And so my follow-up question is, oh. What verse says that? Go, you, you go find that, and then you tell me. You know, and, and if they actually hunt, they'll find one verse that has the word three or third with the word demon in it. And that's in Revelation 12, which if you read the passage, a war breaks out in heaven because of the birth of the Messiah. It has nothing to do with some primeval before the fall thing. There isn't a single verse in the Bible that says a third of the angels rebelled with Satan before the fall. Zero. 
We have invented the idea and taught it as doctrine. That's a no, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We shouldn't do that. Yeah. So here's my question to the, again, the, the skeptical listener. What else don't you know? Honestly, what else don't you know? Because that is like a fall out of bed, easy question they think. And the answer that, that they'll give you is nowhere to be found in the Bible. Yeah. So as we kind of, you know, we, we throw this information at people, um, you know, the hope is for people to approach their Bible differently and rethink how they view the Bible and read the Bible. So practically, how can someone that's hearing this, um, how can they take step ba- steps back from maybe what they've traditionally viewed, how they viewed the Bible, and then reapproach the Bible and actually put in the work to study it? Um, and we're not asking people to get PhDs yeah. or anything like that. No, they don't, just, you don't need you know. degrees. Okay. You don't, you know, I got lots of degrees, you know, I, I do, you know, I had translation work in 12 dead languages. You don't need any of that. Okay. That's for people who, you know, like pain. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, and I loved it. Okay. But you don't need any of that. What I recommend you know, to, to either new believers or believers to just have a sense that, you know, I, I just kind of need to s- start over here, you know, re- you know, push the reset button. I would recommend a couple of things initially in no particular order. This question is why I wrote a little book called What Does God Want? The first half of it is the, the story of the Bible, as, you know, as a story, just telling the story. What what does God want? Simple question, and it's got a very discernible answer. It doesn't take you. It might might take you ten minutes to read it. Okay. I would also start watching the Bible Project. Okay, for some of their again their their theme their thematic you know videos. Basically, you can land anywhere in the Bible Project YouTube site and get something out of it. But the ones that really focus on the overarching story of Scripture, it'll it'll help you think differently about what's going on in the Bible. Okay, then I would recommend, you know, hey, get a study Bible and actually read the notes and look up the cross-references, okay? There are a reason why those things are in there, because the, the Bible, biblical writers regularly connect to each other. Okay, so, you know, do those kinds of things. If, you, if you're a little bit beyond that or when you get to that point, I recommend the resource called the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. It's awesome. It, it's one. It's a source, and I have these one-hand sources. This is one of them that are indispensable to helping you connect the dots of Scripture. It's awesome. I also recommend my little book, Supernatural. You know, when you get to that point, because that that will give you a, an overview, a Genesis to Revelation overview of how the dots connect. I will give you the framework for understanding the rest of your Bible. And if you want more detail, then you graduate to unseen realm. Okay. Cause that's for people who like to read footnotes and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Supernatural is just the average person in the church. I'm, I'm telling you this, it's going to sound like crazy, but I'm actually serious. If you do these things up through even supernatural, you don't even get to unseen realm. You will know, you, I shouldn't say no, you will understand more about your Bible 
than 90% of the people in church, no matter how long they've been a Christian. Okay, I will buy you dinner if that is not the case. <laughs> All right? I, it, I know it's going to be the case. It's because a lot of what's produced, you just, even if you're lucky enough to go to a church that gives you some content, you know what you're getting? You're getting dots. Oh, I got a dot over in Luke today. Got a dot over in Matthew. Got a dot over in 1 Samuel. And, and you're never taught to connect things. You're never given an interpretive framework into which all this data comes. No one ever builds the matrix for you. Okay, Th this is what I'm trying to do. You know, it, the podcast is for people who've already eaten lots of kale, okay? <laughs> They're already down that road. But, but if, if you're just beginning, these things will help reorient your thinking. And I, I honestly believe, give you a an appetite, renew your appetite, you'll recover your appetite for scripture because you start to see how awesome it is, how intelligent it is, how interconnected it is, how, how everything in there, even the weirdest stuff plays a role somewhere in some idea that is going to be important as we follow the breadcrumb trail down the road. There's nothing thrown away. Okay. It, and, and for the, for people who don't have a framework, again, they've never had the matrix built. They don't have a mosaic is another metaphor I use a lot. That sounds outlandish and just no way. I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm really not kidding. So that's where I would start. That's cool. How do you think a Christian's faith will be challenged uh, and or changed as they kind of pursue a deeper study of the Bible? Yeah, I, I think there, there are going to be a couple things. One, you know, we've already mentioned the sort of tension that this can create, and, and I get it all the time, is why wasn't I taught this before? Okay, when that question surfaces in your head, don't be angry. Okay, you were not taught this before for no personal reason. Nobody was targeting you. It just is what it is. Move on, okay? So you, you got to get over that. that that's going to be a challenge to you. The other thing is, is you will start to, to think about what the biblical writers are doing, and then you'll wonder about, well, is it really inspired? And the reason you ask that question is because you were taught that inspiration is like a download. You know, the, the, the prophet, you know, sitting there making breakfast, and all of a sudden he goes into a trance, his mind is gone, his, his hands and arms just start moving, and then he snaps out of it, looks down at the table, and there's a scroll. And he thinks, wow, I can't wait to read that. Okay, that is not how scripture is produced. God providentially prepared people to write, to do a job. He, he knew what he was getting when he picked them. He prepared them through the whole course of their life. God isn't just momentarily interested in zapping people. Okay, God is, is at work providentially in the, in, the, in, in the life of every hand who ever touched this thing. Preparing them skill-wise, experience-wise, and that could be good and, and tragic, all these things, the occasion they're in, he has shepherded them along the way for that moment when he wants them to sit down and write something. And they are perfectly capable of doing it, and they do it well. So you're going to start thinking about the nature of inspiration. That might trouble people. Because we're taught to look at the Bible like it's a channeled book. 
Okay, I, like I like to say, that's for UFO cults, okay? That is not for, 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 for biblical theology. Okay, the Bible is not a channeled book. It's not the matrix where you get something plugged into the back of your head. Oh, I got the book of Job now, you know? No, that is not how it works. So you're going to be challenged, you know, along the way. You're, you're going to notice the, the biblical writers using material outside the Bible. Even though if you just read your study Bible, your notes would tell you that. But as, as, as you're just trained, you know, to, to think about Scripture differently, it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel like a very human enterprise. And, and you're going to feel like, wow, you know, I, I need that pagan text, you know, to understand this one. Ooh, that doesn't make me feel comfortable. We have to understand why they're, they're doing what they're doing. Okay, yeah. There's no publishing house where Samuel or Moses is going is to publish a systematic theology and hope Amazon does, you know, does the right you know, by it, you know. There's nothing like that. What they have to do is they they know what their audience is thinking, and so they're going to take things from the wider culture. They're going to take things from other books that their audience has read, and they're going to repurpose the content to either get a thought out clearly or to shoot at a target. That's what they're going to do, and they do it well. They're really smart because God has prepared them well. He yeah. picked the right people. They know what they're doing. You know, and God knows what he's doing. So it's going to retrain the way you think about the whole enterprise of what the Bible is and how to read it. And, and just, just again, just trust. I, I say trust me because, look, I had all these experiences myself. I mean, I've, I've been through every one of them. So I, I understand the tension, a little bit of fear, the trepidation. But at the end of the day, look, there is nothing new under the sun. Your Bible will be intact. You'll love it. You'll appreciate it more. It, it's just, when, once you start to see that it's so far beyond the same Sunday school stories that we tell in junior church, but now we have adult illustrations. It's so far beyond that. It's going to renew your enthusiasm for, for getting into it. You know, I can honestly say that that, not only my experience, but Look, look, Unseen Realm, I mean, I don't usually throw numbers around. Unseen Realm is pushing 300,000 units sold. That is unheard of for a book with footnotes. There are lots of people who have been supercharged in their interest for Scripture because of it, and that's why it exists. I had a good editor. It's not because I'm particularly skilled. Okay, I... If I wrote it today, I'd probably want to do it differently, but then I'd probably mess it up. You know, it, 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 it is what it is. But the, the purpose of it, again, I can see providentially looking back on it, is it's really energized people to, to focus on the, on the, the big story, the meta narrative. When I wrote the book, I didn't think that at all. I wasn't, that, that thought wasn't in my head. You know, I'm a, I'm a granular kind of guy, but now I've become, you know, a big picture guy just because of, of being forced to go through these exercises. So you don't have to be afraid of, of the outcome. Scripture is a wonderful thing. Uh, what, what you believe, you know, that the core doctrines of the faith are solid. They may be what they are for different reasons than you've been taught. And, and frankly, they may be more solid than you realize okay, because of things that you haven't been taught. So just jump in. Jump in. You'll, you'll enjoy it. That's awesome. Dr. Haas, I really appreciate you coming on. 
uh, and given us, you know, the insights that you've presented. Um, they're super helpful to me as these are things that I, I'm working through, uh, different types of tensions that I have myself. And um, I'm just trying to rediscover how to read scripture. And so I'm just super thankful that um, how God is using you and, and how you're being used to like give people a new way uh, to look at the Bible. And I want people to be in contact with your content. So if you could let people know, maybe you've mentioned some books, but what are some ways that people can get into contact with you through the internet? Yeah, my, you could, my, my, the nerve center is my homepage. So it's DR as in doctor. And then my initials, MSH, drmsh.com. Well, it's so clever. <laughs> I used to have my full name and nobody could spell it. <laughs> so I, I use that now, drmsh.com. Um, that will give you a, a tab on the, on the landing page to everything I'm into. I'm, in, I'm into a lot of pop culture stuff, the fringe community, weird stuff that people believe about the Bible and all sorts of things. Again, my, my mission is to get people to think well about primary sources but, and the Bible is the is the the main one you know in that mix, and think well about Jesus because pop culture is assaulting your faith from all different fronts. It's not just the stuff we talked about today. It's crazy shows like Ancient Aliens, you know, just all this weird, you know, spirituality stuff. Okay, I've been in it for twenty years, so you're you know I write fiction as well. That's kind of where I. You know, I gravitate toward that sort of thing. And I have a YouTube channel. Anything that I do, you're going to find a link to uh, at, at that website. For a book, it, everything's on Amazon. Yeah, Everything's on Amazon. Sweet. And I'll put the, uh, in the show notes, I'll put links to your social media, your website, and so, some of the books yeah. that you have We have out. an Instagram account. I think it's guy who does my social media just changed it. So it's D, I think it's DRMSH, PhD, which sounds a little uppity, but, <laughs> but he said the other one was taken. It's like, what was in the yeah. world? So I own Instagram, Facebook. I mean, but you can get to all of it you know, through the homepage. Sweet. Well, Dr. Hauser, I really appreciate you coming on. I think it, it, it will be super insightful to listeners, and I hope that it encourages them to, um, to put in the work to, to read scripture, to understand it, and to grow deeper and rethink how they view the Bible. So thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. Thanks again for tuning in to Rethinking Christianity. Today's episode with Dr. Heiser for me was super helpful and challenging in my own rethinking and reading of the Bible. If you'd like to check out Dr. Heiser's work, you can find him at drmsh.com. Dot com. You can also find him on Instagram, and you can find his books on Amazon if you just type in Dr. Michael Heiser. Some of these books are The Unseen Realm, Supernatural, and many other books that he's written on the Bible. Uh, he is a super insightful guy, and I would encourage you to check out his stuff and check out the Naked Bible podcast, which he is also a host of. All the links to these things will be in the show notes, so if you want to check that out, they will be there. And until next time, I'm Blake Fine. And this is Rethinking Christianity.